On the 25th of September 1984, in one of the hardest-hitting speeches of his long presidential campaign against Ronald Reagan, former Vice President Walter F. Mondale spoke powerfully at George Washington University about the contemporary political landscape. This election is not about jelly beans and pen pals. It is about toxic dumps that give cancer to our children. This election is not about country music and birthday cakes. It is about old people who can't pay for medicine. This election is not about the Olympic torch. It is about the civil rights laws that opened athletics to women and minorities who won those gold medals. This election is not about my standing in the polls. It is about my stand against the illegal war in Nicaragua. This election is not about slogans like standing tall. It is about specifics like the nuclear freeze. Because if those weapons go off, no one will be left standing tall. This election is about values. I refuse to cut loose from my history and desert the beliefs I have always fought for. I would rather lose a race about decency than win one about self-interest. Despite his best efforts, he did lose. The country, according to Mondale, was getting another four years of jelly beans and cowboy boots. So, today on American History 2, we'll be discussing the complex and often contested intersections between liberalism and conservatism in Ronald Reagan's America. And welcome to episode 22 of American History 2 And fresh from reprising his role as Fritz Mondale I am joined by Dr Malcolm Craig Hello Malcolm Hello Mark And as we discuss liberalism in Ronald Reagan's America this week We're joined by Joe Ryan Hume of the University of Glasgow So welcome And uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Sure So first off, it's an absolute pleasure for me to be here with you I've been a fan of the podcast since day one And it's fantastic to watch or well, listen to it grow over these years and he recited the little note we gave him perfectly. Yeah, that's We're having you back on. <laughs> well, he did a told me at gunpoint, so. <laughs> so I completed an undergraduate degree in Scottish history at the University of Glasgow in 2011 and went on to an American Studies Masters at the same institution, a course that, if memory serves, you did as well a year or two before. Yes, indeed, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I then shifted gears again and advanced a PhD programme in American Political History at the University of Glasgow, which I'm currently in my final year of. So my project explores the political landscape of the 1980s from the perspective of the supposed losers to reveal the persistence of liberalism at a time of conservative dominance. Throughout the decade, I essentially argue that the triumphs of the right at the ballot box and broadly across American society would take place against a backdrop where the advancements of liberalism still mattered. From figures such as Edward Kennedy to Robert Bork, I examine the intersection of liberalism and conservatism in American politics and society to unveil an interesting and terribly underdeveloped part of the decade, namely what those in opposition did to stem the tide of conservatism. Great. I look forward to, to discussing that, especially I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the Robert Bork chat, having read your article <laughs> in the conversation about that yep. this week. So at this point then, quickly on to, on to listeners' opening question, and this one comes from Sarah Thompson, uh, who actually was one of my former students. And Malcolm, I don't know if you remember, I told you that in a previous podcast that someone taught me about Ronald Reagan's habit for avid doodling. Uh, that was uh, Sarah's presentation, and her presentation proved so good that she actually got invited to the Reagan Library uh, to present it. So she may well be taking our jobs in the future. But thanks for this question, Sarah. And the question is, which president do you think should be added to Mount Rushmore and why? And I'm going to come to you first, Joe. Okay. Well, given that this is my first time on the podcast, I'm going to play the safe, pragmatic card. And go Jimmy with Carter. The, <laughs> and go with the obvious choice, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
FDR obviously was a four-term president. He had reshaped the American political landscape and had a massive impact on everything from, I mean, the role of government to conduct of foreign policy. And also, interestingly, he's consistently ranked among the greatest presidents of all time. Obviously, he had his flaws, but I reckon there's a strong case for his face to be sculpted in the granite of Mount Rushmore. Okay, yeah, right, right. You're you're right. Like FDR is the obvious answer, but he also he got he got to open Mount Rushmore, so that's just sort of been greedy then to be put on it. And since you've already taken FDR, I and and since I recently discovered, thanks to hottestheadsofstate.com, eh, check it out that Franklin Pierce is actually the better Franklin. Franklin Pierce is considered the hottest president of all time by that website. I'm going to go for him because if you think the people of South Dakota have to drive by this some of the time and aesthetics matter. So let's have the hottest president of the United States. I would like to know the methodology for deciding that Franklin (laughs) Pierce is the hottest president of all time. Right, so Malcolm, uh, I assume you you're just going to go to bat for another straightforward, boring FDR type answer, yeah? I'm actually going to take a counter position regarding that. Doesn't Mount sound Mount like Rushmore. you at all. Uh, I'd argue that if there's a, if there was a fifth figure going to be carved into Mount Rushmore, it should be a leader from Native American history, not a president. Okay, justification. Uh, well, I mean, because of what happened, I mean, the the Black Hills, the Dakotas, an important uh, site for Native Americans historically and contemporarily, and I'd argue that a face such as Red Cloud or or Sitting Bull or one of the the you know the noted Native American leaders uh, should look towards the president, hopefully in some kind of acknowledgement of the fact that Native Americans had their land and culture stolen from them. So I'd say no president. See, oh. you thought I was going to say Jimmy Carter, didn't you? <laughs> no. Right, so let's try and get a, a bit of a, a grasp on the 1980s before we go into discussing the sort of uh, the, the how the strength of liberalism during that decade. And we've already we've obviously done the podcast on the HIV/AIDS crisis, but we didn't talk too much about the wider political context in that. But it's fair to say that many have characterised the decade as Reagan's America, as in President Ronald Reagan, who is president between 1981 to 1989 um, and has a huge impact on both foreign and domestic policy. Does the idea of Reagan's America accurately describe what's going on in the United States during the 1980s, or is it far too simplistic um, to give this that nomenclature to, to a decade? And I'll, I'll start with... with with you, Malcolm, in terms of what's going on in terms of foreign policy? So Reagan's obviously a, a critical figure in many areas of foreign policy. Uh, I mean, particularly relationships with the Soviet Union. You know, after the decline of detente in the late 1970s into the early 1980s, when Reagan comes to power, he is a major figure in dealing with the Soviet leadership and presenting the US face towards the Soviet Union. You know, up to the end of 1983, he is a very confrontational figure, the evil empire speech, the strategic defense initiative or Star Wars, it becomes better known. I mean, he characterizes the, the Soviet Union as a force for ultimate evil in the world, uh, all that kind of stuff. But post that, especially in his second term, he becomes a whole lot less hawkish and a lot more dovish towards the Soviet Union. And a lot of that is to do with the developing relationship, with the death of the old guard in the Soviet Union and the, the rise to power of Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, he's also a critical figure in transatlantic relations, especially with the United Kingdom. The relationship that he has with Margaret Thatcher, while it's not perfect, it's not without flaws, they do have a genuinely very warm relationship between the two of them, and that really does a lot for transatlantic relations. And in other parts of the world, Central America is absolutely critical 
uh, in Reagan's foreign policy. And it's not Reagan alone that's doing that. There's a lot of other figures there. You know, you have people like, uh, you know, George Schultz, Casper Weinberger at the Department of Defense, people like National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane, uh, National Security Council staffers like Colonel Oliver North, uh, whom we'll, we'll come to, Robert Gates, who's Deputy Director of Central Intelligence. All these kind of things. And a lot of policy comes from the NSC and the CIA and all that kind of thing. So Reagan is uh, an important figure. I mean, he did do things like, even in his hawkish phase, was working behind the scenes to improve US-USSR relations. You know, during the period up to 83, uh, he personally sees the Sandinista government in Nicaragua as something to be disposed of. Uh, That's his personal opinion. And this leads to the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, which I can talk about momentarily once we've had a chance to hear about the domestic side of things. Yeah, so Joel, what, is it fair to characterise the domestic scene as Reagan's America? Well, I mean, if you examine the historiography, it certainly seems that way. From books like uh, The Age of Reagan or The Reagan Revolution, it's almost as if Reagan and Reagan alone defined that era. Um, but I've always thought of it kind of like the proverbial man with a hammer to whom everything is a nail, where many of these observers just examine the entire period through this Reagan prism interpret the decades politics shaped and dominated by the movement he led but but my answer to that and I, I'm hoping to obviously demonstrate this through my eventual thesis is that it's far too simplistic to think of the 1980s as purely Reagan's America or indeed the Reagan era. Obviously undoubtedly Reagan was a colossal figure and I mean his masterful use of media and campaigning ensured that he left office with one of the highest approval ratings of any president, despite a number of clear setbacks, including Iran-Contra scandal, as Malcolm alluded to. Um, his ethos of limited government and three market solutions shifted the political landscape. And if you think about his tax cuts and military expenditures at a time, at the same time as he was stripping funds from I mean, an array of welfare programmes, then he tilted the balance and effectively increased inequality. I mean, that's, I mean, the point about kind of military programs actually links back to what I was saying. I mean, Reagan comes in and he accuses Jimmy Carter of kind of leaving America defenseless, cancelling things like the B-1 bomber. And he also makes these big rhetorical statements like, you know, the United States Navy will be a 600-ship Navy and all that kind of thing. A figure kind of pulled out of the air. You know, why exactly? No one ever is quite sure why exactly 600 ships is required. But this is, you know, making America, making America great again. <laughs> uh, as a certain current candidate... Uh, would say. Would you, would you put him on a par in terms of his influence on the decade? I know he's not, he's not there as long, but given what we mentioned about FDR at the start, is Reagan similarly important to his era as FDR was to the 1930s? Like, forgetting World War II, which will come afterwards. Like, in terms of domestic policy, is the Reagan and FDR sort of have similar influence over their decades, do you think? Well, in terms of mythology, well, you certainly think that way, but I'd argue no, because FDR was able to push through an array of New Deal programmes and he um, enjoyed a Congress that was of his own party, whereas Reagan had, um, a con- the Democrats had control of the House of Representatives throughout the entire Reagan era, and then obviously the Democrats later in 1986 regained the Senate, which meant that he had many checks and balances placed on his agenda where FDR maybe didn't have as many. Um, there was also progressive developments at various federal, state and local levels, that, such as social security and civil rights, um, which kind of kept this FDR legacy going, even though uh, Reagan maybe wanted to strip it. But the idea that Reagan had a massive impact on his decade, I mean, you, 
you can certainly argue that he did. If you think about 2008, that was almost seen as the bookend, end of the Reagan year. People were still talking about this president who'd been out of office for X amount of years and who'd indeed passed away years before, and it's still seen as the age of Reagan. I mean, Clinton's presidency is framed through this prism of Reagan. Um, obviously, I'm arguing against that, but I can see why mm. people interpret yeah, it that I way. I mean, even in 2012, I mean... There was a, did Obama not make like a, when he was running for re-election, he was often like, you know, Ronald Reagan wouldn't get elected in this Republican Party as yes. a, a stick to beat them with, yes. you know, so set, very much defining them that way. I mean, I think, I mean, in terms of foreign policy, I mean, you, I think I absolutely agree with, with all of this, that it's the image of, of Reagan. It's Reagan as icon for many people today. I mean, it's interesting looking at how he's talked about, even in the, the current election cycle, that Loads of people still say Reagan won the Cold War. He won the Cold War. He beat the Soviet Union. It's down to Reagan and it's down to American military and economic and cultural power mm-hmm. that the Cold War came to an end. Now, that is utter nonsense. It is, is absolutely, has no bearing, you know, with, with reality. George Kennan, the man who set the foundations for American Cold War foreign policy back in the 40s, he commented when the Berlin Wall fell and this exceptionist idea that it was Reagan that did it was coming about. Kennan himself went, the very idea of this is completely ludicrous. I paraphrase the man. But, uh, so, but his, his image, the icon of Reagan as the great cold warrior, but also the great peacemaker who mm. brings it all to an end, uh, despite the many flaws. I'll probably need to talk about Iran Contra at some point very briefly. Yes. In fact, do you want to talk about it right now? Right. Okay. We'll get, I'll try and, I promise to try and do Iran Contra in one minute. And, you know, Joe talked about the, you know, and you talked about the high approval ratings that he had towards the end of his term, despite the fact he plummeted after Iran Contra. So what the hell was that all about? So as I said earlier, Reagan and the U, and his administration, the National Security Council, the CIA are trying to prosecute a war in Nicaragua and Central America to remove the Sandinista government. The Sandinistas took power from the uh, Somoza regime, which was fairly right-wing, authoritarian, unpleasant uh, quasi-military dictatorship. Uh, And the Sandinistas were leftist, communist, socialist, however you want to characterise them. But for Reagan's administration, they were communists. Mm -hmm. Reagan said, uh, there's something, and again, I paraphrase, there's a, there's a communist communist regime only two hours from Harlingen, Texas, uh, was his was his comment. So they saw them as this is a springboard from the for the Soviet Union. This is despite the fact the Sandinistas actually made pledges not to allow any Soviet or Chinese or whatever bases in their country. They made they really didn't want anything to do with that. They took financial aid. So how how does Iran get involved in this? How does Iran get involved? So. Congress cuts off the money. They've been financing the the Contras, uh, who are former Samozan presidential guard and military and everything, who left for other Central American uh, countries. These are Nicaraguan. These Contras. are Nicaraguan, former pro Somoza regime ones. So they got they end up getting trained by the CIA, the NSC, various other interests, and money's getting funneled to them to buy arms and all that kind of thing. Congress eventually, after all the terrorist attacks that the Contras carry out, because they're not very good at actually being an army, but they're good at being terrorists, Congress goes, look, enough of this. Democrat, as Joe said, Democratic-controlled Congress. Like, sorry, cutting funding. This is, we cannot support this, this goings on. But within the NSC, you get people like Oliver North, who, there's a brilliant description of Colonel Oliver North, who becomes the face of this entire thing. Uh, 
North was an ambitious, charismatic young operative with a moist-eyed love of his country and an unshakable certainty that he knew what was best for it. He had the sunny, undimmed confidence of a man who lacks insight into his own weaknesses, the White House speechwriter Peggy Noonan later said. Uh, so what they do is come up with this scheme is to they initially get money from private enterprise to buy arms for the Contras, but that is falling apart. Congress is, you know, they're worried about Congress and all that thing. So they come to this very, very complicated deal. There's American hostages being held in the Middle East, in Lebanon, and various places like that. Iran, under the rule of the Ayatollah, who sees the America as the great Satan, so arch enemy, all its business, has influence over various groups in the Middle East, terrorist groups, if that's what you want to call them in the Middle East. So the Reagan administration secretly goes to an admitted enemy of the United States and says, look, if you can help us release these hostages, we'll sell you weapons. This has to be done illegally, under the counter, shady arms dealers also. But North has the brilliant idea of connecting Nicaragua with Iran. Said, so why don't we take the slush money, these laundered dollars we've got from selling weapons to Iran, and use them to buy weapons for the Contras? It's very complicated, but basically that's it. And for, you know, Obama, just to conclude this, you know, there's, there's a you know, constant, you know, persistent kind of idea that he's unconstitutional, tyrannical, and all that kind of thing. The the hero of the of the right in America, Ronald Reagan, and his administration did subvert the constitution. They did operate illegally in, in Iran Contra, and this comes out in the press and creates a huge, huge scandal. I mean, actually, just to add to that, there's fascinating transcripts in the um, National Security Archives of meetings with Reagan and his top staff where Reagan's sitting saying, well, we didn't do anything illegal at all. We're mm. all by the book. And his staff are saying, basically, Mr. President, we did do something completely illegal. Um, I mean, Reagan was trying to frame the whole debate as if the Contras were the founding fathers. He, what does he call it? He said they are the moral equal the moral of, our equivalent of our founding of, fathers. Sorry, yeah. equal of our these, founding these, these Contras did some really nasty things, didn't they? But, um, but yeah, we, we, we better move on. Yeah. Um, but there you go. You've got a quick primer on the, the Iran-Contra affair. So, Joe, let's let's kind of turn to to, the, to your expertise here. How do liberals, liberals fit into this decade? I mean, some people might be surprised to hear that you're looking at the 1980s, you know, this time of seeming conservative triumph, three huge presidential election victories, and yet you're focusing on liberals. Um, what is it about their overarching story in the 1980s that's, that's so interesting or significant? Sure. Well, I mean, if history is truly written by the victors, as they say, then isn't it important and, and I suppose incumbent on us as American historians to seek the other side of that story? And that, I mean, that was what initially inspired this project. And I can remember tracing it almost to two specific moments in the 2008 election, actually, one of which took place in the Republican uh, primaries at Reagan's library, where they were each asked if Reagan was still alive, would he endorse you? Which I thought was fascinating. Um, <laughs> which ele which all, election was that? 2008. 2008. They were all in the hangar with Air Force One behind them, and um, it was John Anderson who was the moderator, and they each asked each one of them, and they all fought over Reagan's legacy. They said, well, I would, Reagan would of course endorse me because X, Y, and Z, which was fascinating, because, I mean, he's been out of politics for X amount of years. Um, and then another, an interesting aside actually to that was uh, there was news that a vial of Reagan's blood was being auctioned online in May in 2012. And I remember the price quickly jumped to $30,000 as people ex explored this tantalising possibility of whether he could be cloned. So I mean that gives you this idea of Reagan's indelible mark on conservatism. It's, it's like the boys from Brazil. <laughs> I don't get that reference. It's a book and a, a film about cloning Hitler. Oh right, okay. So, so I mean, obviously, 
it culturally, especially at least on one half of the United States or one political half of the United States, Reagan's legacy is, is so dominant. But what are, I mean, I think people might have been even surprised that aren't that familiar with the 1980s that, like you said, there's a Democratic House of Representatives um, from 86, there's a Democratic Senate. So what are, what are liberals up to um, in the 19, 1980s? Sure. Well, I mean, that, the argument would be that it's too simplistic to see Reagan as this dominating figure and I mean, surely there is another side. What were the opposition doing? This whole idea is did they completely disappear or were they in the bunker regrouping, as you might think? Um, so, I mean, I wanted to explore that. And what's fascinating, actually, is that those that are self-described as liberals that actually increase throughout the decade. So this period, which is seen as conservative dominance, people that are subscribing to liberalism actually increases from... I thought I think, the 1980s was an era as well when liberalism became a dirty word. Exactly. I mean, yeah. the, the word liberalism does become an epithet by 1988, um, and you see that very clearly in the 1988 election. Um, but this, the progressive ideals or the values at the heart of liberalism don't die. They don't diminish. There's, other, there's people in the opposition who are carrying that torch forward. They're just maybe doing it in different ways. Um, so if you think of someone like Edward Kennedy or Daniel Patrick Moynihan or X, Y and Z, they're doing things behind the scenes to kind of ensure that liberalism uh, stays relevant. And that's things like ensuring the survival of social security or pushing through civil rights legislation. Um, so all that kind of happens in a period which is seen as conservative dominance. So there is another side to that story. Um, and I certainly wanted to tell that side. Um, or to put it more simply, I mean, I was attracted to this idea of the losers in Reagan's America. Um and I wanted to show that by labelling labeling liberals as losers, then we obviously obscure a very important part of the 1980s. I'd like, if you don't mind, to turn back to where we started with the 1984 election as a as a you know point for point for discussion, because the Democratic Party ticket is notable for the fact that Walter Mondale's vice presidential running mate was Representative Geraldine Ferraro of New York, the first woman ever chosen for that position by the, one of the major parties. And I'd be interested in exploring how this very important moment came about and to what extent women's rights groups were able to leverage support for a female running mate for the presidential candidate. Sure, that's, I mean, that's a great question. And in many ways, the answer actually begins on Reagan's election day, November 4th, 1980. The day obviously marked Reagan's historic election over Jimmy Carter, but buried among this idea of fanfare and spectacle on election night was the emergence of a fascinating and new political phenomenon, the so-called gender gap. So this gender gap is a term coined in the early 1980s to refer to the electoral phenomenon of women voting for Reagan and the Republican Party by proxy in significantly lower proportions than men. And this happened for the first time in history. Mm -hmm. um, and additionally, what became termed the feminization of poverty was women were disproportionately affected by the curtailment of social welfare programs and services during the Reagan presidency. So, so it wasn't... This the gender gap doesn't emerge as maybe you might traditionally think on issues of like social issues, things like abortion uh, or their female like Planned Parenthood, that kind of those kind of issues. It's, well, it's, it's does, actually pocketbook stuff. It, I mean, it, it, it does to an extent on both. I mean, this idea of the feminization of poverty causes this chasm to between the political preferences of men and women to, to widen further. But I mean, abortion and social social issues are massively important. But for the nineteen eighty Democrat uh, Republican convention was the first time that the Republican Party reneged on the Equal Rights Amendment. They took it off the platform. So that signaled to women, um, particularly women of a kind of liberal ethos, that the Republican Party were against their interests. So what happened was they started moving into the Democratic Party almost in droves. Um, and the, the Equal Rights Amendment you mentioned was uh, the amendment which was aiming to enshrine equal rights in the Constitution. Exactly. It passed Congress in the 70s but didn't have enough 
states ratified it and eventually died when it didn't meet the deadline. Exactly, it died in 1982 after a massive backlash on the right, led by Philip and I mean, this idea of the gender gap emerging, um, women's rights groups recognise that this could give them a newfound political clout. So women's groups such as the National Organisation for Women started pushing for a seat at the top of this table in the Democratic Party. So evidently after kind of, you know, pushing for a, a seat at the top of the table, uh, women's, you know, liberal groups such as, such as now got it. So, so in what ways did they, did they did they push for that seat? How how was how did this come about? Indeed, they did get it, and I mean that they were using this idea of the gender gap as evidence. They, they began to argue that the democratic ticket would not only secure this gender gap, but would actually widen it um, by linking things like increasing participation or turnout or indeed momentum. This idea of a woman vice president began to seriously take hold. And one of the key facts was the claim, based on Census Bureau data, that an estimated 8 million more women than men were projected to vote in 1984. So this strengthened the impression that women held the power to determine the outcome. So with strong assurances that obviously he would seriously consider, was his quote, um, a woman on the ticket, now actually endorsed Mundell in December 1983, uh, before even the first primary had even taken place. And in justifying this endorsement over the rest of the primary pack, which included Jesse Jackson, actually, who had been the only one to actually promise to choose a woman running mate, now pointed to this perceived electability of Mundell. That I mean, worked out well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Mundell eventually did win the primaries, but of course, as we discussed, he lost the general. Do was it was it a was it a nakedly political decision, or do you think by this point, guys like Mondale? Jesse Jackson, key figures in the Liberal side, did think it was really time for a woman to be on the ticket. Um, a, a bit of both, I'd say. I mean, the gender gap came out of nowhere. It surprised everyone. So it did change political calculations going into the 1980s. Um, but Mandel obviously knew that he could harness this power of the women's vote and he was losing white men to Reagan because Reagan was so popular. So this was a way of trying to bring people back into the fold, certainly. Yeah. So, I mean, so what impact did, once, once she's on the ticket with Ferraro's candidacy, what impact did this actually have? And I think also, how is it remembered? Sure. Uh, well, unfortunately, the, although Ferraro's candidacy was trailblazing, I mean, in a number of ways, um, the stereotypes had always framed the way that the press and the public saw political women haunted Ferraro, particularly over her supposed weakness with uh, national security or foreign policy. She was dogged by questions regarding her husband's finances and her opponent, uh, Vice President George Bush, was constantly viewed as more capable for the job. Um, and while the, her, her, pro, her pro-choice position on abortion as well was also quite heavily criticised, perhaps most damagingly by New York's Archbishop, Archbishop John O'Connor. Um, so when the vice presidential campaigns camp, candidates were battling out inside Pennsylvania Hall for the vice presidential um, debates, Everybody outside pro-choice and pro-life activists had almost a war of words, which inflamed this issue further. She sort of acted as a lightning rod exactly. for everything. Exactly, which is fascinating because people who'd ran in the past, Catholic uh, liberals like Edward Kennedy, for instance, ran in 1980, didn't get as heavily criticised on his stand, his pro-life stance on abortion. So it was almost framed through this idea that she was a woman, mm-hmm. um, which is quite interesting. And is that the primary means that uh, political opponents used to attack Ferraro? Is it framing everything as a... In, in, in gendered terms? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, a lot of the debate was about her style, what she wore, um, where she, her family, her husband's finances. None of these questions had came up before in previous candidates for vice president. This was the first time that this was kind of a key issue. Um, so what eventually happened was that it confirmed this aphorism that 
people mainly vote the top of the ticket, unfortunately, because although Ferraro was, was trailblazing and fascinating in a number of ways, um, I remember reading this report um, by a Cleveland voter who'd said that Ferraro was one hell of a lady. I just wish Reagan was with her. So it's this idea mm. that this idea that d- despite her kind of um, her particular dynamic placement on the on the ticket, it made absolutely no difference because Mandel was seen as uh, not a very popular choice and it didn't make much of a difference going forward, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that's quite interesting. So the dream ticket, Reagan Ferraro. Reagan you know, Ferraro, eighty-four. Just out of interest, it's just on a side. If you just quickly say, why does why Geraldine Ferraro? She, she's just a New York. I don't mean just. She's a New York representative. Why? Why her? Um, well, to be honest, Tip O'Neill had a massive stake in that. She, the Speaker of the House. Speaker the of the House, Tip yeah. O'Neill. Um, he, was, he was running the convention in 1984 and he basically leaned quite heavily on Mundell to pick Ferraro because Ferraro was one of his favourite um, representatives. She was she had sat on main, uh, main, main committees and um, she'd had quite an interesting impact. She was seen as liberal, but she was also quite moderate. Um, she'd helped uh, uh, develop one of the platforms going forward um, from the House Democratic Caucus. And uh, she was seen as quite a dynamic campaigner as well, so that was one of the main reasons. Kind of right place, right time then. Exactly. I mean, there was other candidates that could have been on there, but she was right place, right time. So, I mean, she has, obviously, then short term, uh-huh. it seems like a setback for women. Was there was there any sort of long-term positives that Ferraro's candidacy? You know, was she, you said trailblazer, you know, do you do you think her, she's very significant in, for example, probably the front, the definite front runner for the Democratic nomination, probably most likely president at this point, uh, as polling goes, is Hillary Clinton, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, is Ferraro, was she the first to make those cracks in the glass ceiling that Clinton referred to in 2008? I think so. I mean, she changed the whole political calculus of the Democratic Party. They, not only was the gender gap massively important, but they realised that bringing more women into the fold would help push through liberal issues. Um, so liberal groups were able to point to the fact that they'd succeeded at least in one way or another in making this idea of women as a relative constituency group to be taken quite seriously. Uh, so Ferraro's candidacy is actually part of this wider effort by these groups at the time to, to push more women into running for elected office. So my argument would be that it mattered less for its success, because of course it didn't succeed, um, but it mattered more for the statement that it made about women's political organisation in the 1980s. I mean, if you think about by 1992, for example, um, the number of women in the House of Representatives had more than doubled from its numbers from 1980, um, expanding from, I think, 21 to 48, and the US senators had went from 2 to 7. So this episode kind of symbolised this enhanced role of women in the decade. And, I mean, like you said, I think Clinton's candidacy today would have been almost impossible had it not been for Ferraro's run yesterday. Yeah. And it seems quite interesting, I mean, uh, that <clears throat> uh, it's in the 90s you have, like you mentioned how foreign policy, she was targeted as weak, you know, they'd playing into the gendered image, and yet 1990s, Madeleine Albright is Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, yeah? And in, then you have Condoleezza Rice during the Bush administration, so it's it's interesting that, from that was our main point of, oh, you're too weak because you're a woman on foreign policy, that all of a sudden they played key roles in foreign policy. Um, but then, so, I mean, on Ferraro herself, though, she doesn't do herself any favours long term, does she? In the 2008 campaign, does she not make some sort of comment? She was she was stumping for Clinton at the time and make some sort of comment that Obama was only in the position he was in because he was a black man or something like that, and he's lucky that he's a black man which somewhat tarnished her legacy amongst liberals, I think. But, I mean, st- still t- certainly a trailblazer. But, so we've sort of covered the role of, of, of women there. And let's, 
change tack a wee bit and look, you look a lot about race as yes. well as it's de- developing on the liberal side. Yes. And in 1984, obviously, the main, the main man to think about here is Jesse Jackson, uh, the Reverend Jeff, Jeff, yeah, Jesse Jackson who runs in the primaries. And I read a recent article arguing that Jackson is basically responsible for the modern Democratic Party, party the whole kind of rainbow coalition that Jackson championed. And we can maybe discuss that view in a second and what you kind of both think about it. But uh, how significant is Jackson's campaign in 1984, Joe? Sure. Well, I mean, what's actually quite fascinating about that campaign in particular is how quickly people dismiss it. Um, he's seen, although he's seen as attempting to forge this idea of a rainbow coalition out of um, those left marginalised by mainstream politics and given uh, voice to minorities, it's seen as a non-starter. So, in fact, when he actually starts to succeed quite well, it takes everybody by surprise. Um, indeed, Jackson's rainbow is absolutely no mirage. I mean, he, he eventually won three southern state primaries and carried more than half of the Mississippi delegates. But unfortunately, his, his unguarded and, I mean, at times quite outrageous, in fact, um, comments, particularly those towards Jews, um, as Jaime's and New York City as Jaime Town um, derailed his candidacy and I mean all but destroyed his political viability at that point um, no matter how much he tried to apologise which he did quite heavily but incidentally although he started and fought with in 1984 he'd, he'd actually returned much stronger in 1988 and he'd blaze a fantastically impressive primary run all the way to the nomination and uh, convention in Atlanta and he certainly left an indelible mark on the 1980s and I mean Mark I'm just I mean you're obviously You've mentioned before you're growing up in the 1980s. Do you remember hearing at all about Jackson and his effect in American politics? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't remember. I, I was only 10 when the 84 election was going on. But in the in the later 80s and into the into the early 90s, I remember you know, Jesse Jackson being one of the most prominent African-American figures I can recall. One of the most prominent non-sporting African-American figures coming out coming out of America. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew who Jesse Jackson was. I maybe didn't know much about his politics mm-hmm. as a teenager, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know much about his politics, but I, I knew of Jesse Jackson. Yeah, and definitely the same for me growing up in the 90s. Like, you're just sort of a figure that you were aware of. So it's quite interesting, like you said, people just sort of brushed over it quite quickly. I mean, the, the two figures, that, I mean, they're, kind of like, they're, they're almost kind of like, you know, co-located in my memory or this kind of thing, or Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Two almost they occupy almost a similar space in my historical memory, mm-hmm. as fallible as it is. And I mean, if you think about this idea of demographics, that's one of the main reasons why I'm looking at women and race is because Obama's election is seen as this uh, demographics of destiny, this coalition of the ascendant. And I mean, women and women and minorities in particular give him the kind of push through the uh, general election. Obviously, he was a, a fantastic candidate in, in himself, but they were the base of his uh, election campaign. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you bring up Obama. I mean, there's there's a very easy uh, sort of comparison to be drawn with Jackson and Obama because you have a 1984 convention, you know, after he's obviously been defeated for the nomination, Jackson makes this kind of huge speech that I think you've discussed with me. You think it's kind of ahead of its time. Sure. And, uh, you know, he says, America is not like a blanket, one piece of unbroken cloth, the same colour, the same texture, the same size. America is more like a quilt. I really like this analogy. <laughs> many patches, many pieces, many colours, many sizes, all woven and held together by a common thread. The white, the Hispanic, the black, the Arab, the Jew, the woman, the Native American, the small farmer, the business person, and so on, so on, the lesbian, the gay, and the disabled make up the American quilt. Um, And then Jesse Jackson's in the audience at Grant Park when Obama's just won election. 
in 2008 and he gives Obama gives a speech about promising to lead the young and old, the rich and poor Democrat and Republican, the black white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, gay, straight, disabled and not disabled so you very much see like you know, this clear line to be drawn and obviously there's the famous picture of Jackson is crying in Grant Park while he's making the speech. And it's interesting the, the, the you know the way Jackson frames that when he talk, you know talking about kind of uh, LGBT people you know right at the point where the Reagan administration as we talked about in a previous podcast is ignoring the AIDS crisis which is not only affecting you know you know gay men in America but affecting m- many people in America but they're just because it's so associated with with gay men it's they're, they're ignoring it at the time but Jackson brings it up Mm-hmm. Exactly. Jackson's coalition, as he says in his speeches, the damned and the downed and the disheartened and etc. He's looking out for the people that are maybe being left aside by politics, which is, I think, if if you hadn't preambled that Jackson uh, quote by saying it was Jackson, then you would have immediately thought that was Obama saying something like that, because they're very, very similar. So mm-hmm. I think that article seems almost as if it's spot on. I'd be fascinated to read it, actually. Yeah, no, I mean, but... But for all these interesting things that are going on in the Democratic side in 1984, the first woman vice president, you know, the the first serious African-American candidate. In 1984, Reagan wins a huge landslide. Um, Indeed, I was watching a few hours uh, for my Sins of the Election Night broadcast um, from, from CBS during the 1984 election. And the one thing they keep going on and on about is trying to tell people, please still go to the polls. Because it's so obvious so early that Reagan's won and the polls aren't closed in the West. And basically, Dan Rather spends every every single section when it comes back from an ad break, still go and vote. Vote. Please vote. Please vote. Honestly, there's important stuff. How big will, he's elect? will he win all 50 states? Please vote. Honestly, it's interesting. So, I mean, like it's such a huge victory. And in the end, Reagan wins every state bar... Uh, Mondale's home state of Minnesota and the, the District of Columbia. But my, my my question for both of you is how much this election tells us about the state of liberalism um, and conservatism, conservatism in the mid-1980s? You know, in the broadcast that I was watching, they discuss a lot about, is this Reagan's, is this a realignment? Is this a Republican realignment? But how much is 1984 actually just about the fact that the economy's booming, you know, the it's relative peace in the Cold War um, at the time. I mean, perhaps you may want to touch on the peace abroad section first, Malcolm. Well, I mean, I think despite all the economic problems that affect America in the 1980s, and they are many and varied, we've come out of the the rampant crisis and oil shocks of the 1970s into a slightly more economically peaceful 1980s. Mm-hmm. A more uh, stable world. Slightly, slightly, slightly more, more stable. But peace abroad. I mean, yeah, the eighty-four election is is just before. I mean, Gorbachev comes into power the next year, and that's where we really start seeing the thaw between between Reagan and Gorbachev and America and the Soviet Union. Uh, but but at this point, Reagan is still fighting the Cold War. He's fighting it in different parts of the world, in you know parts of Africa, in Central America, in. Latin America, in the in the Middle East, uh, to, to to give one example, actually, there's the American support of Saddam Hussein in the 1980s uh, when he's fighting the Iran-Iraq war, uh, because Iran, despite the fact that America has been selling Iran weapons through Iran Contra, Iran are the the big enemy in that part of the world, and so the United States supports Saddam Hussein in his fight against Iran. 
But and this I think connects into the kind of the issues of you know liberalism and everything. There are liberals within the Senate and Congress who are trying to get Saddam Hussein condemned, and this is in the slightly later eighties, towards the end mm-hmm. of Reagan's term, get him condemned for Saddam Hussein's genocide against the Kurds. Mm-hmm. The Anfal, uh, mass use of chemical weapons, mass executions, uh, ethnic cleansing, as the term had become to be known after the events of the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. But you could frame it as, as genocide. And there are kind of liberals in the, you know, in Congress, uh, Senator Claiborne Pell, uh, is, is one of them, who are trying to pass resolutions that condemn what Saddam Hussein is doing. And the Reagan administration is, manifestly unwilling to do that because there's still a certain Cold War mindset. He may be a bad guy, but he's our guy in the Middle East. And so to to boil it down, if you're an American voter in 1984, though, do you think you perceive a relatively peaceful world? If you're an American voter of a certain mindset, you see America as being almost out of the uncertainty of the post-Watergate, post-Vietnam oil shock period. Reagan's brought us back. Look, look what we've got now. We've got new bombers. We've got new nuclear weapons. We've got SDIs on the horizon. It's not. It never, you know, yeah. never works. But the Navy's getting bigger. We're introducing crews and Pershing into Europe. America is stronger and more powerful than ever before. And I think actually that's captured quite well in one of Reagan's um, advertisements that he runs in 1984. I mean, everybody remembers the famous morning in America. America yeah. But one of the really fascinating ones is this, this idea of the bear. The bear, yeah. One. Peace yeah, through yeah. strength. Yeah, peace through strength. So this idea of shouldn't you be as strong as the bear? And I think that captures this idea of where America now is in 1984. Yeah. So I mean, like the so the peace aspect is one one half of morning in America. Talk to me a bit about the domestic side. Sure, well, just as a wee tidbit, just you say that Mandel won Minnesota, and he did, but it was only by 3,761 votes. So he very, ne- he very nearly lost his home state. So I think that shows how, how widespread Reagan's uh, electoral map was. Um, but what's quite interesting, actually, in terms of liberalism and Reagan's impact on liberalism throughout the decade is, especially after just talking about Jesse Jackson, who ran on a, I mean, a very liberal platform in 1984, is the extent to which Reagan caused a variety of these liberals to, to, to almost run for cover, to, to mute their philosophical beliefs, or in other words, to kind of reform and refine the way that this liberalism was sold and communicated to electorate. Um, the Republican Party had done a fantastic job of demonising liberalism and pinning the economic and social problems that were besetting the nation before Reagan arrived in office on the Democratic donkey. Um, and this was carried throughout the decade. Um, so, I mean, in response to Carter's out in, in Reagan's ascension in 1980, what happens is liberals start to think about changing tone rather than substance. So they still hold on to their values, but they think about a way in which it's better communicated. Um, and I, I remember I came across a quote um, by Democratic Senator Paul Songus in 1980 um, calling for this kind of new approach, but three months into my PhD, actually, and I swear I could not have written it better myself. <laughs> um, so I'll read this quote to you. It says... Liberalism must extricate itself from the 1960s. We must move on to the pressing problems of the 1980s. We must have the answers that seem relevant. We are at a crossroads. Liberalism will either evolve to meet the issues of the 1980s or it will reduce to an interesting topic for PhD writing historians. (laughs) That could be more perfect. So is that, that, is, that, is, that is remarkably prescient. So I think I'm obviously going to begin my thesis with that. Obviously, I was trials and tribulations. Three months in, it was this song was giving me a message to just, you know, keep going. Yeah. It's a, mes- a message from the archives. Exactly. So exactly. And how much does that kind of like, that, those kind of ideas figure into 
the Democratic primaries in '84 with you know, Big Mondale against Gary Hart. Sure, sure. I mean, that's that, that's a perfect example. Hart's actually quite a fascinating political animal, and he definitely does not get the attention that I think he deserves. Um, at the time he's running, he's a, he's a relatively unknown candidate, but he positions himself in that kind of mindset as this younger, fresher, and more pragmatic liberal, one who could appeal to this kind of anti-establishment sentiment that Reagan tapped into so well. Um, but What's interesting to note is that he had an almost identical liberal record to Mondale. I mean, by 1982, the civil, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union had given Hart the highest liberal score of any senator. So what Hart's doing here is he's positioning himself as a new ideas candidate, someone that's a little bit different from Mondale and showing how it's not necessarily the ideological soul for the Democratic Party that's been contested, but it's how you present this liberalism that's been contested. And this leads up to Malcolm, the famous expression... Oh, where's the beef? Yes, from the the debate where uh, where Hart's talking about kind of like the kind of things he would do if he gained the candidacy and gained the presidency, and Mondale just sits there and goes, essentially, but, but there's no substance to your your kind of thing. You're just talking in generalities, and he just goes, "Where's the beef?" Referring to Wendy's hamburger commercial. Exactly, it's this idea that this new ideas is as vague as it is appealing almost. I mean. Um, What's quite interesting is Mundell had actually never seen that ad and it was one of his aides that told him to see it, so he had no idea how it was going to do. He'd never seen the Wendy's ad, it was the Wendy's ad. And actually, if you watch the video that I think you shared on your Twitter cast, um, you can see that he's he's almost hesitant about how the reaction is going to be, and then he realises he's hit a slam. He gets gets a good laugh out of the entire audience. And I mean, mean, Hart is stumped. Hart has no idea how to respond to this. And what actually interestingly happens, this is an interesting tidbit, is a the following the following evening he appeals looking for a kind of media friendly response he appeals on the news um, with a pose for a photograph of his book A New Democracy which was released in 1983 between two hamburger buns and he's saying here's the beef <laughs> and he's saying he's saying, he's saying the interest the, the reason why this uh, a lot of people cannot digest this beef is because it's ah. reared on special cattle uh, special interest cattle so he's almost trying to play this as oh, a political I feel point. like he went too far with he that final line. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love a tortured analogy, but that's a tortured yeah, analogy I mean, too far. Yeah, I mean, Gary Hart had his own problems as well with his own personal yes, affairs and yes, everything. Yes. But, so one final word in the 84 election. I think, I really like Mondale's quote. And actually, like, anytime I've ever heard Mondale speak, especially after the election, he still comes across a really affable guy. But uh, Mondale said of 1984... Reagan was promising the morning in America and I was promising a root canal. And that, that was quite a candid assessment of uh, the election, I think. So turning to kind of groups on the, the ground in the election and kind of and liberalism and, and how this is all working out, uh, you recently published a piece on the grassroots opposition to Robert Bork nomination in 1987 uh, for the website The Conversation. So can you tell us a bit more about about who Bork was, what was this all about and what happened? Sure. Well, I mean, w- what was quite interesting was I seen this this common battle over who would fill um, Antonin Scalia's seat in the Supreme Court, who passed away just a couple of months ago, um, had some interesting parallels to this idea of a contested nomination at a very similar stage in Reagan's presidency. Um, well, and it happened in the summer of 1987, and one of the moderate justices on the Supreme Court, Lewis Powell, had basically surprised everyone by announcing his retirement. Um, and Reagan was, was absolutely sh- determined to fill this vacant seat with someone who would um, kind of carry on this governing philosophy of conservatism. But but Powell was a moderate and he was almost seen as a swing vote. So liberals were already quite aghast at this idea of him filling the seat. So when they announced, when Reagan announced that Robert Bork was going to be the nominee, I mean, Robert Bork was almost seen as this Diana of conservatism, famous uh, uh, 
judge and legal scholar. So when it was announced that he was a nominee, there was this tremendous fear that if he was confirmed, he'd swing the the, the court to Conservatives in important Liberal victories, starting with Roe versus Wade, of course, on abortion. Tremendous fear among Liberals. Yes, yeah. tremendous fear among Liberals, certainly not among Conservatives. I mean, they were licking their lips at the idea of Bork being on the court. Um, but this, so so they, they formed this block Bork coalition to try and block it. Um, and what they did was they kind of used this idea of his opinions and his writings against them. Um, but, and what eventually happened was this forceful and kind of well-organised response to Bork's nominations eventually stunned the Reagan administration. They had no idea this was going to happen. And the fact that this was actually sandwiched in between the electoral landslide that we discussed and then, of course, the election of his vice president, this ability of Liberals to coordinate and work together to defend this idea of the, the Liberal legacy, I'm going to argue and argue in the piece and I'll argue in my thesis eventually that it undermines this, this superficial historical interpretation that we've been discussing a little about the idea of conservative ascendancy and liberal decline juxtaposed did, with one another. Did you, you maybe want to say a word or two um, about does Ted Kennedy not make a speech about Robert Bork's America that is very much sort of a, sums up these liberal fears about what might be coming in terms of the conservative tide? Sure. I mean, it's full of hyperbole and it's, uh, it, it's uh, people are stunned in their seats by some of the things he's saying. You can watch it on, on YouTube, in fact. And he basically presents this dreary picture of what Robert Bork's America would be about back alley abortions and African-Americans that not be able to sit at lunch council, counters once again. And obviously he's using an extreme, extreme uh, kind of idea of what Robert Bork's America would be. But what it does do is it kind of, it kind of uh, energises the liberal base and allows senators who were maybe wavering because of the, they're maybe more moderate, allows them to rethink the nomination and think well maybe actually we should come out against it so it draws out the process a little bit more and gives them the kind of fuel to continue that fight against them and during this entire process Bork's name ends up being transformed into a verb indeed indeed I mean by charging that Bork was unfairly demonised during this whole process Conservatives actually used as evidence the fact that Liberals had literally dug through Bork's trash I mean that actually did happen they dug through his trash to find things that could, they could use against him that's good good old fashioned gutter journalism <laughs> exactly. in exactly so, so his name was actually transformed from a noun into a verb during this process and to Bork someone has now came to mean to vilify a person beyond belief in order to prevent their uh, appointment to public office so it's interesting to think that Republicans may actually now Bork Obama's nominee how history comes full circle and, and I always thought Bork was someone from Star Trek there you go <laughs> <laughs> no I mean it's quite interesting you said they went through his trash because I was watching a couple of speeches on the Bork nomination in preparation for this and one of the Republicans James Danforth you know says to his followers this man has been or the man's been trashed in our house and was there not loads of series of ads run by liberal groups against them was, they, they'd, they'd actually spent the most money they'd spent for the entire decade on this one uh, confirmation fight and one of the most really famous, like the most most money all went on yes and one of the most famous advertisements was one that was uh, narrated by Gregory Peck that was done for People for the American Way and it paints a, a very dreary image this idea of Bork looming in the background as a threat to both the Supreme Court and they have a nuclear family standing at the steps of the Supreme Court that says idea that Bork is a threat to them both and a threat to America and Gregory Peck of course from his famous role as a civil rights lawyer and to kill a mockingbird kind of subconsciously is telling American voters to vote against this guy he's, he's almost the devil incarnate mm-hmm. so if we start to, if we start to round off this discussion then and try to come to a couple of conclusions about liberalism in the in the 1980s I mean obviously what goes on afterwards shapes this a lot in terms of you have the emergence of Bill Clinton in 1992 as a third way Democrat as someone who's not not meant to be seen as beholden to liberalism and you have the is it the democratic or what's the part leadership council that are formed to really drive Democrats to the middle um, very much driven by conservatives so how do you square this with 
democratic politicians pragmatically looking at the situation going, right, we have to drive to the middle. You know, Bill Clinton will sign bills like Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, and the Welfare Reform Bill in 1996, which uh, many African-Americans view as being negative towards him. I'm sure Jesse Jackson wasn't a fan. How do you square this liberal um, activism that you're talking about in the 1980s and its importance with what will then happen in over the next 15, 20 years in American politics? Well, I mean, it's true that um, conservatives had massive success in demonising liberalism. I think I'd be trying to rewrite history if I almost said that what didn't happen. Um, so, like I said earlier on, liberals almost run for cover. But what's more interesting, I think, was not being brought out in this narrative is not that they didn't change their beliefs or their value system. They just changed the way they communicated it. I think you see that quite quite well with Clinton in 1992, 1992. He, he, he runs as this new Democrat, this new deal, uh, this idea of a, a kind of third-way Democrat, but his base is still minorities and women and kind of the liberal interest groups, and he needs them to get elected. He, of course, understands that he needs to make his appeal more palatable to kind of moderates and independents, but he still uses them, and I think in his first two years in office, you see almost he's, he's almost a liberal and conservative clothing, to think it that way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the story of the 1980s that needs to be brought out. And I think if you think of our current moment in the progressive developments that are happening just now and how Obama was able to ascend to the presidency you need to understand this grassroots activism in the 1980s and what that kind of brought about because I think the idea that all that happened was the DLC came in to save the day is far too simplistic the DLC had an impact of course it did but the DLC weren't the only part of the story Okay Malcolm, do you have anything to add? No, I mean, I just think it's, it's a fascinating story to hear about this the different take on, on Reagan's America, in, in air quotes. And, you know, from the point of view of you know, foreign affairs, you know, you see from the 1970s, you have the rise of human rights as a transnational issue, which becomes even ever more prominent as time goes on. But there's also, in many ways, when you're dealing with the Reagan administration and foreign policy, and I mean, don't get me wrong, Reagan does highlight important kind of liberal human rights issues to do with the Soviet Union and everything within the context of the Cold War and all that kind of stuff, but also the support for many illiberal regimes uh, around the world. And the, in many ways, because of the power of the executive uh, and the NSC and other shadowy kind of like, you know, groups that are set up like Iran-Contra, uh, the, the failure of kind of liberals to, in, in some ways, affect certain key areas of foreign policy. Uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, to give the to, you know, to give a particular example. Great. Well, I have have very much enjoyed listening to both of you chat about uh, these sort of this different perspective on the nineteen eighties and Joe especially. I mean, uh, your thesis found sounds fascinating, and I'm not just saying that. No, that, that uh, I mean, does sound gen- genuine, genuinely fascinating. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. So, uh, thanks again for coming on and joining us, um, and Malcolm. Thank you as always, and uh, we shall be back. Uh, about exactly a month from now um, uh, with an as yet undecided topic we're going to leave it mysterious yes mystery right from us thank you very much bye bye thank you very much goodbye